Hi, this is Jill Harrison, Executive Director of the National Institute on Aging Impact Collaboratory at Brown University. Welcome to the Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speakers and ask them the interesting questions that you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of the companion Grand Rounds content can be found at impactcollaboratory.org. Thanks for joining. This is Vince Moore. I'm one of the uh, multi-PIs, along with Susan Mitchell, of the new NIA-funded Impact Collaboratory effort designed to improve the quality of life of persons living with dementia and their caregivers by introducing interventions that we think might work because they've been shown to do so when researchers uh, implement them and to see if they can actually be implemented in a functioning healthcare system per se. And uh, today I'm delighted to introduce Monica Talyard, who is a professor at the University of Ottawa and Ottawa Hospital and a specialist in statistics of cluster randomized trials. Uh, and we're asking her some questions uh, following her great webinar focusing on the step wedge design, which is one kind of uh, cluster randomized trial. So, Monica, that was a wonderful talk. Um, I just wanted to ask a few questions here. Um, so you mentioned during your talk that uh, to properly calculate the sample size needed for step wedge design, the investigator needs to estimate uh, the correlation of the outcome over time. Is that the correlation between successive measures of the outcome variable at the person level or at the cluster level? Do you, could you help me that? So that is a great question, Vince. Um, sample size calculation procedures for the step wedge design are more complex precisely because we need to account for these more complex correlation structures. So not only do we need to account for the regular intracluster correlation coefficient or the ICC that we're all familiar with, uh, but we also need to account for an estimate of this correlation over time, exactly as you mentioned now. So your question is whether this correlation over time is at the person level or at the cluster level. And the short answer is it can be both, depending on the type of stepped wedge design. So if we first consider the cross-sectional stepped wedge design, so that is the design where we have measurements taken on different rather than the same individuals in each period. And suppose we've got a continuous outcome. So if we're planning to use a mixed effects regression analysis approach, fortunately we have these sample size calculation methods available. And they do indeed require us to specify these two types of correlation coefficients. So the first is called the within-period ICC. And this is simply the correlation between multiple individuals measured in the same cluster and in the same period. It's the regular ICC we're all familiar with although it's attached to a specific length of time. Don't forget that. So this, the length of a single step in the stepped wedge design. The second correlation coefficient, which is new, is called the cluster autocorrelation coefficient, or CAC. And this is the one that can be interpreted as the correlation between repeated cluster means over time. 
But I just want to mention that there is an interesting alternative way of thinking about this CAC or cluster order correlation coefficient. And that is that one minus the CAC represents the percentage decay in the strength of this within period ICC over time. So for example, a CAC of 0.6 represents a 40% decay in the strength of the ICC when the individuals are observed in different steps rather than the same step. So, for example, if the within-period ICC is 0.05 and we assume a CAC of 0.6, it assumes the between-period ICC is 0.03. So it makes perfect sense that the between-period ICC is less than the within-period ICC because in most longitudinal studies, the strength of the correlation tends to decay over time. So I've just explained these two types of correlations for a cross-sectional stepped wedge. Now for a cohort stepped wedge, that's a design in which we take these repeated measurements on the same individuals over time. In this case, not only do we have this within period ICC and the CAC to specify, but we also need to specify a third correlation. That's the person-level correlation over time. And that correlation we call the individual autocorrelation coefficient, or IAC. And we can think about this correlation simply as the strength of the correlation in repeated measures on the same individual. So just in summary, so for both the cross-sectional and cohort designs, we need to specify these two ICC parameters, the within-period ICC and the CAC. And then for the cohort design, we need a third parameter, namely the individual order correlation coefficient as well. That's great. Now, just a little clarification. So, because many investigators are familiar with the correlation of measures over time within the same person, as you've just discussed, but less so at the cluster level. Do you have any guidance for how one gets those cluster level estimates, um, whether it's for the uh, cross-sectional or the longitudinal, uh, the w within person over time? Absolutely. So there are several things we can try uh, to do to obtain estimates for these parameters in advance. And the very best advice I can give is to try to obtain raw historical data for your trial. So ideally for a similar target population, similar clusters, and similar time intervals as for your actual design. Now, fortunately, step wedge designs are often done in settings where the outcomes are assessed using routinely collected data. So that's an ideal position to be in because then you can try to gain access to some historical data in advance of the trial and you can feel really confident in your sample size calculation. So assume first we have a continuous outcome. So what we normally do is fit a linear mixed model to these historical data, and we will use the same random effects as what we would use for our actual analysis. Of course, we need also a fixed effect for time, but there's no treatment indicator as this is merely observational data. And then we just take the estimated variance components from that mixed effects regression analysis, and we put it together to determine the within period ICC, the CAC, and in the case of the cohort design, the IAC. Now, I just 
want to say something? I've been talking about continuous outcomes all along. What about binary data? Most of our step wedge trials usually have uh, binary data. So in that case, we recommend that we still use a simple linear mixed model for estimating these parameters rather than a random effects logistic regression model. And the reason is that our sample size methods require these ICC estimates to be on the proportions scale. But if we do a random effects logistic regression model, all of our estimates are going to be on the logit scale. And unfortunately, we have no easy way to convert from the logit scale to the proportion scale to get the right scale for those ICC estimates. And I should also just say that we don't really know if the, this method works very well for binary data. We know the linear mixed model works really well for continuous data, but we don't really know how to estimate them definitively for binary data. In the absence of anything better, we recommend just using a linear mixed model, but this is definitely in an area where we need more work. So... Um, what do we do if we don't have any routinely collected data available? I would say at the very least, you should try to obtain a reliable estimate of the within-period ICC, say from previously published trial reports, and then perhaps you can just hazard a guess as to the extent of the correlation decay to get an estimate of the CAC. Um, so generally, perhaps to be conservative, you can just set your CAC at 0.5 or 0.6. Um, now, if you don't have any routinely collected data at, available whatsoever, nor do you have any previously published estimates, it's not a good situation to be in. But even here, we've still got some rough rules of thumb we can follow. For example, we already know that ICCs for clinical outcomes tend to be smaller than for process measures. And we also know that ICCs for binary outcomes tend to be smaller when the prevalence is low and when the cluster sizes are very large, the ICCs tend to be smaller. And I would also hazard a guess that ICCs also tend to be smaller with longer time intervals. So these are some rough rules of thumb for the ICCs. We don't have any explicit rules of thumb for the CAC. Um, and then just a final word of advice is please for investigators to publish these estimated correlations from their completed trials because that could help uh, for, uh, another researcher plan their, their trial. That's actually great, great advice. Uh, just a question of getting the editors to allow one to put in all of the information you'd like to have, but that's actually great. So our uh, next question, uh, re also related to power, is in regular uh, uh, cluster randomized trials, uh, conditional on any given uh, ICC value, the number of clusters increases the power more than any increase in the number of subjects within a cluster. Does the same principle seem to apply in step wedge designs and or is there some other hidden problem? Yeah, so with step wedge cluster randomized trials, we still get more bang for the buck, if you will, by increasing the number of clusters rather than the number of individuals within clusters. So it's always preferable to have more clusters. Um, and that, of course, as you know, this is because of the presence of the intracluster correlation. So there's diminishing returns to increasing the cluster sizes. 
But now there's another way to think about this in a stepped wedge cluster randomized trial, because with this design, we often take measurements on all the available individuals within a cluster. So further increasing the number of individuals within a single cluster period is usually not possible. But it may be possible to improve your power in such cases by increasing the number of periods, so the number of measurement times, which essentially increases the duration of your study. So, for example, suppose you've got 10 clusters and your planned step lengths, which you've worked out based on logistical considerations, are three months. So one possible design is to have two steps and three periods. So that gives you a total study duration of nine months. But you can improve your power here by increasing the number of steps and therefore also the study duration. So ultimately, you will get the most power by letting each cluster cross at its own step. So in this case, you may design your trial with 10 steps and 11 periods. But of course, that increases the total study duration to 33 months. So you will have to consider whether that is still logistically feasible. And in general, we find that the power increases most from increasing the number of steps from a minimum of two to around six steps. And beyond about six, maybe eight steps, the power benefit from increasing the number of steps further starts to decline. So that's a simple way that you can try to increase power when you've only got a limited number of clusters. So that then balances to the next question. Of course, your, your duration of the study is always then increasing your risk of the potential for confounding with time. And uh, what happens when history intervenes in the midst of a step wedge design in a way that you suspect could affect how this intervention is implemented or the measurement of the outcome? And is there some analytic recourse that you would suggest or that you suggest, yeah, ha have for that other people can take? So that's the final question, <laughs> which I'm hoping we don't have to answer. Um, <laughs> the, I think the fourth question will be more useful for us to consider, Vince. That question is actually, I don't think there is any analytical recourse, because if, a, like, if there is an interference that affects all of the clusters at the same time, in that period, you only have clusters exposed to that interference. There's no control in that period. So I'm pretty sure your analytical model is going to fall apart. Okay, so then the, the, the earlier question was about measured outcomes. Um, uh, so when you're, uh, you know, often investigators care about the measured outcomes, even though they're conducting a pragmatic trial because they want something, for instance, in the case of dementia, about the caregiver. And very rarely is there routinely information collected about the caregiver. So you want to have a measurement of how the caregiver feels, and this has got to be collected in some way by the researchers. But measured outcomes are often subject to missing data. Um, is this analytic challenge complicated when conducting a step wedge design even more so than a, a standard phase three um, per, a person level uh, uh, randomized trial? I think so. So missing data is a challenging problem, of course, in all types of trials and no less so in cluster randomized and stepped wedge trials. So I'm not aware of any work that's been done on the topic of missing data in stepped wedge trials specifically, but I think 
we can probably use methods and principles that have been developed for standard clinical trials as well as for cluster randomized trials with the additional caveat that we will always have to account for time and we will always have to account for the more complex correlation structure. So I think the two main methods of dealing with missing data are probably a complete case analysis, which is basically just analyzing all the available data, and multiple imputation, which is a process of randomly imputing missing values from a multivariable model that's used to generate a distribution of plausible values. So multiple imputation is the gold standard method, but it's complicated. And quite frankly, it's not always required in a randomized controlled trial. So for example, if the outcome variable is missing in a stepped wedge design, here I think the best advice might be to just analyze all the data that you have available. So, but you should adjust in the analysis for covariates that you think might help explain the missing data. You don't really need to use multiple imputation for missing outcomes because a complete case analysis is perfectly valid under this assumption of missing at random, which means we assume that the probability of having a missing outcome depends only on the observed covariates, as long as those covariates are also adjusted for in our analysis. But of course, it's very difficult to prove that this assumption of missing at random applies. So, so me, I think why, sorry? Let me just go one step further with that. So if, if I understand correctly, then the, really the problem, since um, the number of observations or the number of outcomes measured within any step in the step wedge design um, is probably less important for the ultimate power of the uh, of the of your efficiency of your design uh, uh, then really it's you're assuming that the process that generated the missingness of the outcome variable is the same across all of the wedges because that's sort of like assuming the experimentals and controls are subject to the same kind of bias so it's it's isn't it that more than just uh, assumption of missingness at random Yes, for sure. So to get unbiased estimates of your treatment effect, you will have to assume that the missing mechanism or whatever uh, factors drive this attrition or the missingness uh, is non-differential across time and across the treatment conditions. In other words, that um, it's not an issue of the individuals being exposed to the intervention and therefore uh, they are less likely to want to complete the questionnaires. That would be a really bad situation to be in. So you are hoping that the reasons why people are not completing the questionnaires could be just that uh, there are some other things going on that potentially are captured with their baseline covariates. Maybe it's based on their baseline level of comorbidity or some other factors that you've actually observed already at baseline. And as long as you adjust for those factors, you can still get unbiased estimates of the intervention effect. Well, thank you very much. Um, I actually have learned a huge amount. And I have several follow-up questions I'll ask you separately. Um, but thank you uh, very much for your time and for that great talk. Well, you're very welcome, Vince. It's been a great pleasure to do this. Thank you for listening to today's Impact Laboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Please be on the lookout for our next Grand Rounds and podcast next month.